You're listening to episode 50 of Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Let's chat. Discover children at a whole new level. Be empowered to grow with the children in your life. Welcome to Chat About Children with Sonia Bestelich. Hi there and welcome to Chat About Children where we chat about all things children and empower you to grow with the children in your life. Today's episode is all about food and how it can affect your child and what to do about it. Now, I've been a speech pathologist for over 20 years and I've worked with thousands of children and their families. And over the years, it's become more frequent for me to hear families and parents talking about putting in place changes within their child's diet. And it's not just coming from a place of wanting you know, general overall better health for their child, but it's very much coming from a place of looking at ways to better help their child with their attention, with their learning and with their behaviours. So to help us understand this area further, I can't think of a better person to talk to than Sue Dengate, who has done extensive research in this area. So let's get this chat started with Sue. Sue Dengate is a psychology graduate and former teacher. She became interested in the effects of food on health and behavior as a result of her own children's experiences. Since then, Sue has published five best-selling books and a DVD. She's spoken to tens of thousands of people all over the world and was an Australian of the Year finalist in 2009. For the last 25 years, Sue and her food scientist husband, Dr. Howard Dengate, have run the Food Intolerance Network through their website, fedup.com.au. Sue, welcome to the Chat About Children podcast. It is an absolute honour to have you join us. Thank you, Sonia. Likewise. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Come on, come on, Sue. Now, Sue, we are talking about a really fascinating area today, and, and I don't have to tell you it's fascinating because you already know that, but there is so much to talk about. So before we launch into the topic of how food can affect your child and what to do about it, I'd love for you to just share a little bit more about what were you doing prior to all that research on, you know, the effects that food had on children's behaviour and health? What were you doing before all that? Right. Well, I had a full-time job many years that I gave up when I got pregnant and I was looking forward to being a full-time mum for a while. But I was also running part-time assertiveness training courses just as something to do. And it was really quite interesting because it was through that that I discovered quite early that we had a major problem with our baby child as she grew up because the stuff that I was teaching to parents in my classes wasn't working with my own child. (laughs) This was a worry. (laughs) So Basically, what happened was she was a baby who rarely slept. She grew into a toddler who was into everything. She grew into the terrible twos and never came out again. She was charming. If she had the undivided attention of an adult at all times, otherwise she could be difficult, irritable, defiant, really hard to live with. And then she went to school and she was struggling at school, learning delays, you know, the whole disaster. So... That changed my life totally. Absolutely. And then that obviously then led into your interest and work on food chemicals and intolerances. So tell us what happened then. So she got to school, she was struggling. What was going on for you? Right. Well, we actually had an 11-year journey where I just did the rounds of everyone 
Wow. <laughs> I went to doctors, psychologists, teachers, alternative practitioners, dietitians, you name it. We tried 30 different big treatments such as counselling, behaviour management, motor sensory programs, tutoring, medication, herbal remedies, diets. Most of them helped a bit. Yeah. The only one that made her worse was the healthy diet that a mainstream dietitian put her on. Now, you've really got to think about that. And our paediatrician was a bit bemused as well. He couldn't figure out why I was complaining so much and what was going on. He put her in hospital to test her blood sugar levels. She went on this 24-hour water-only fast. When she went into hospital at the beginning of that, she was being her usual defiant and difficult self. At the end of 24 hours on water only, she was absolutely everything we'd ever wanted in a child. She was, <laughs> she was polite, focused, sweet-natured. She was beautiful. We raved about her to the paediatrician. You can imagine he was as surprised as we were. So then he referred us to an RPA-trained dietitian, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, and we did the RPA elimination diet, and that was our magic answer. It was wow. amazing. And at the end of that time, you know, at the end of three weeks, I thought, well, no parents should ever have to go through what we went through. We'd been through 11 years of health. And so I started writing books, running parent support groups, doing research. I have devoted the last 30 years to helping other people so they don't have to go through what we went through. Yeah, and it has helped tens of thousands of, who knows, millions. So it's just been huge. So really that, that 24-hour test that was done, that was that key turning point, wasn't it? It was, yeah, because it really obvious that it was food. But what was it in the food? That was the hard part to find out. Yes. So you mentioned the RPA elimination diet. Can we just jump to that a little? Because I'd like to understand a little bit more about what that is and what did that entail? Yeah, that's right. The thing about it is that we had done other diets, lots of other diets, but the RPA elimination diet is what they call a low chemical elimination diet. Now, it's really important to understand the difference between allergy, food allergy, and food intolerance. Allergy is a quick reaction to the proteins in foods, like peanuts, and you see a reaction, so you know what it is, and it can be tested. But with food intolerance, it's Often a slow or delayed can be delayed for a few days or cumulative build up slowly over several days or more reaction to the chemicals in foods and it is much harder to find out what's going on. So with the RPA elimination diet, you have to avoid 50 additives that they have found to cause problems that are commonly used in our food plus three natural chemicals called salicylates, amines and glutamates. Now, I'd heard about salicylates. Somebody had told me six years <laughs> before. Salicylates are in most fruit and some vegetables. And I just went, oh, I'm glad we don't react to those. <laughs> I wasn't prepared to listen. If I'd listened, then it would have saved so much trouble. People just don't know about it. And then there are the amines that are in foods like chocolate, cheese, wine, stuff like that, aged meat, that can be a problem, and the glutamates in soy sauce. So it's all that sort of thing. You take everything out at once. You do this really strict diet for two to three weeks and don't make any mistakes. And if that's the problem, you're going to see results really quickly. But the funny part about it is 
we get so many people complaining to us that they started the diet and they've got much worse. And the answer is, this is good news. It means that you're getting withdrawal symptoms. And so all the symptoms do get worse. And it means you're very soon going to start getting a lot better. Sometime in the first two weeks of the diet, be withdrawal symptoms, and then there will be an improvement. So people say, well, how do we know if it's food or not? It is possible to get to the end of that diet. You know, the easy answer is just do the diet. <laughs> you see the reaction, you know, see improvement like we saw. Ah, unbelievable. But if you don't, because some people have made mistakes or there might be other reasons, then you do the challenges. You reintroduce the food chemicals one group at a time and then it can be really obvious what's going on. Yep, that gives you the, the clarity because it sounds like there's just so much to have to work through. So it takes a bit of dedication, doesn't it, Sue? It does. Yeah, you have to be ready to do it. And I certainly wasn't in the beginning, but I wish there'd been a website like ours. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. If I could have read all those positive success stories, we've got, you know, thousands of positive success stories. If I'd come across something like that, I would have been motivated to do it. I would have understood that, yes, this does apply to us. There are other people out there in the same position as me. And yeah, this is what we should do. Absolutely. And the benefit, of course, for anyone listening who might be thinking, you know, perhaps my child or my children might need to, we might need to look into this. The benefit is there is the network, there is the support, there is so much evidence base now because it is a number of years later to kind of support that decision, I guess. So you have made it a lot easier for many families in the present day, obviously, and also in previous years. Can I just ask a general question, Sue, because I am curious about this one, and I'd love to know what your thoughts are, if you have any thoughts on this. But, you know, you talk about intolerances, and for me personally, I just feel like over previous years, there just seem to be lots of people that will say they have a food intolerance. I'm not sure, and I haven't looked at the studies to kind of go, is it actually increasing? If it is, why is that? I mean, what are your general thoughts on that, Sue? Yes. I do think food intolerance is increasing. There's no doubt about that. And when you look at what has happened over the last 50 years, our food, there's been a massive change in our food supply. So we're now, supermarkets just full of what they call ultra-processed foods and they are laden with additives that didn't even exist. Um, in some cases, they're quite new. They've only been introduced in the last 20 years, some of them. And there's what they call the food industry now has introduced a clean label strategy. So they're hiding the additives. What they've done is taken out the chemical sounding names and the numbers and replaced them with what sound like innocent ingredients. So, for example, cultured dextrose or cultured fermented wheat flour or even cultured sugar, these are all ways of labelling or getting one of the worst preservatives in our food supply, in my opinion, into foods. And so people just don't understand. Yeah. Food labels, I mean, gosh, they need a dictionary within themselves, which I think you've probably come up with something like that already, Sue. But you're right. It's so hard to decipher and decode food labels a lot of the time. And I think that, yeah, until we have, I mean, I don't know what the answers are, but until there's a clearer way and part of it is education, which is you know, what we're doing today and building awareness. 
and certainly some clearer, easy to understand labels would be fantastic. Oh, there's no way. There's no, no way. not going to happen? Is it and not going to no, happen soon? You have to understand that the food regulators in Australia are protecting the food industry, not the consumers. Yeah, that's We've true. have been lobbying them for 30 years. I can know. I can tell you that for sure. If people want to be able to understand food labels, that's all right. They can have a look at our DVD. It's now free on YouTube. <laughs> I think that's one of the advantages of doing an elim- the low chemical elimination diet is that you understand what is in our foods. Yeah. That's true. You have that direct feedback and you see the effects and the changes, etc. It makes total sense, total sense. Would you say, Sue, when you look at perhaps some children, and, and I imagine some listeners would go, oh, you said you've kind of answered this before, but you know, I grew up eating ABCD and I'm fine because I know that this would be something that you know adults would think. So, wouldn't it be okay for my child to be eating ABCD? They seem fine to me, and you know, I don't think it's going to affect their health or their daily functioning, etc. Is your response to that, and obviously you're going to tell me your response, but is that more to do with all the new additives that have come in within the last 10 to 20 years that wouldn't have been present? In the childhood of current adults and you know, 30, 40 year old adult today, what are your thoughts around that one? Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of products. Uh, additives can change from day to day in foods. So there are a lot of products I would have thought were quite safe to eat a while back, may not be now. One of the additives that springs to mind is it's a natural food colour, a Natto 160B, but it, some people are affected so badly by it, and I'm one of them. It can be, people are all different. That's what you have to understand. They have different sensitivities. And if you're affected, something like that, and you're eating it every day, it can just change your life completely. And people have no idea. So, yes, you can't say, I used to eat that, you know, I grew up eating that and I was fine. And the other thing is that it's the total dose. Everybody's got a level that they can tolerate up to and so they can eat things and they'll be all right. But these days there's probably a much higher dose that people are eating. Well, I mean, I can tell you there is. Yeah, that's (laughs) And so that's going to make it harder too. Yeah, because it's usually very few people react to just one food additive. There will generally be a combination that they react to and maybe the natural ones as well. And all of those are getting stronger in our food supply. The natural ones as well because... For example, if you take salicylates that are in most fruit and you think of how fruit is put into, say, strawberry-flavoured yoghurt, because this was one of the things we went through with our daughter, one of the naturopaths said, take her off dairy. Well, we took her off dairy, which meant she stopped eating the strawberry-flavoured yoghurt. So it was actually the salicylates were the problem and it wasn't the dairy, but it's so hard to figure it out unless you do a very logical, scientific elimination diet with challenges. Yeah, I think, yeah, from what you're telling me, and again, because it's so easy to get overwhelmed in all of this, I think there needs to be that structured approach that you can just narrow down and get specific on what is affecting and how it is affecting a child. And on that topic, Sue, what are the things that we would see? I mean, you mentioned your daughter earlier on. What would be some of the signs, behaviours in day-to-day that parents would be observing and potentially educators that would be a little bit of a flag or a sign to say, you know what? this could be a link to a response to food additives or food intolerance, et cetera. Help us understand what it would look like. Yeah, okay. So the main behavioural effects of food chemicals are 
irritability, restlessness, inattention, and sleep disturbance. Now, obviously, the parents are going to see the sleep disturbance and the teachers don't. (laughs) And sleep disturbance can drive you mad. Boy, can it drive you mad. (laughs) So that's a big one. And remember, I'm not only talking about children here. Adults can be affected as well. And then we've got the irritability. Okay, so, I mean, basically people are becoming more irritable in our society and I think it's due to food. I did a really interesting interview one time on the radio where the guy didn't know much about food intolerance, but he had been doing a diet to lose weight. He was actually a sports commentator and he'd done this diet to lose weight and then he went out for a Chinese meal and he said he was driving home and he suddenly had this huge road rage rage attack, road rage attack, and he had to pull over to the side and sit there while he got over it. And then he rang me up and arranged an interview because he wanted to ask about it. And he's right, you know. I mean, all these things, people are suddenly getting, having, the kids have tantrums, but the adults are having tantrums too. That's what it amounts to, and it can be strongly related to food. So there's your irritability, restlessness, and then there's restlessness. Okay, so these are the kids who can't sit still, you know, always on the go, can't sit still in the classroom. But that's only the young ones. They grow out of that. And so everybody thinks, oh, well, they grow out of it totally no they don't it becomes inner restlessness they feel restless so you know if I walk into an airport land well not now but (laughs) (laughs) and you see some people jiggling their legs I think oh yeah I wonder what you've been eating (laughs) you know that's a sign of it it's just the feeling restless or people who just have to get up and go for a walk but it's not even that just feeling restless inside I'm also easily bored So restless with whatever they're meant to be focusing on. So that's irritability, restlessness, inattention. Now, inattention is huge because the parents don't see that one. The teachers, well, you don't see it really. Where you see it is when the kid develops a learning delay. So it can have massive effects for the rest of your life, in fact. And so those are the four irritability, restlessness, inattention and sleep disturbance. And you can see it's not so easy for a parent to think, oh, yeah, my child's definitely got those because it just depends what they're doing. The other thing is that they can be bad-tempered in situations they don't like, but if they're in a situation that they do like, they can be really lovely. So you think, oh, there's nothing wrong with my child. It's the situation that's causing the problem. It's far trickier than... The original researchers, you know, when they did research in the 70s, they were saying, oh, no, food additives don't affect children. They were just looking in the wrong place and the wrong way. Yes, yes. And there's so many variables. And I think, you know, some of the things that you discussed there in terms of the features or the signs or flags that we'd kind of be keeping an eye out for, they're real fundamentals for learning. And I know when I read your book, Fed Up, that you had mentioned within that that for some children when there was that elimination of the things that they were, I guess, intolerant to or responding to, there was a change, a positive change in their academic results as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that can make a huge change. I mean, basically you've got the kids who aren't hyperactive in any way and what we call them is the ones who are too quiet. And usually when I give talks, The majority of parents are there because they've got a child who's hyperactive or, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's really obvious, someone they're really struggling with. 
But then when after they've listened to all this, they'll go, oh, but there's a sibling, a brother or sister, who's the other way, the one, she or he is one of the two quiet ones. And it's the same thing. They'll be reacting to the same foods often but in a completely different way and nobody sees any problem except that they just don't do as well at school as everyone expects them to do, which I think is really sad because a lot of those kids will actually prefer, if you give them a choice, if you let them do the elimination diet and see how good they can be and how clear-headed and focused, then they will choose to avoid what was previously good food for them. Yeah, just as that inbuilt motivator. Yeah, that's right. Kids like to do well. They like to be liked, you know. Yeah, yeah. and <laughs> they want to do well. <laughs> yeah. They do want to do well, definitely. So, yeah, I found that really interesting. And I'd love for you to share, Sue, you know, have you got one or two stories that really stand out to you? Because I know you've had, you know, a gazillion letters sent to you and written to you about the positive results that, that are often seen when they have gone through the process of the elimination diet, etc. Tell us about a couple of stories that stand out to you. Okay. <laughs> well, I'll start with Jack's story. Jack was age three to four when his mother, well, she wrote over a period of years, but he was very much like my daughter. So he was often grumpy, always on the move, poor sleeper, difficult child. He actually had a tantrum when he was three, put his hands through a glass window. That's how bad it was. Yeah. And the speech pathologist at preschool assessed him, even though he wouldn't sit still, so that made it really hard. And he was diagnosed with severe expressive language delay and a moderate receptive language delay. At that time, he was eating bread with the preservative in it. His mother, in the meantime, decided that he must be having problems with wheat, so she took him off wheat. And six weeks later, he was assessed again by the speech pathologist using the part of the test that Jack hadn't done because he was so non-cooperative. And she found no significant receptive language delay and he was only mildly delayed in his expressive language. And she said she'd never seen a change so dramatically in such a short time. It took that family another 12 months to realise that it wasn't, he wasn't having a problem with wheat or gluten. It was the breed preservative that had caused the whole problem in the first place. Wow. How did they work that out? I know you've done a bread preservative study, but how did this family come to that conclusion? Because they saw my website. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that was the obvious answer. I I get that all the time from people who come to my talks. They'll say, oh, no, I can't have wheat. And then later they'll write to me and say, you were right, it was the preservative. Mm. And in New Zealand there was a family who kept their son off all wheat products in fact might have been all gluten products for eight years and it wasn't in New Zealand at that time they were using oil in the bread that had a an antioxidant synthetic antioxidant he was sensitive to that so if he'd done the RPA elimination diet they could have figured all of that out but eight years is a long time to be avoiding something that's as important as that yeah yeah so that's really important okay so that was Jack's story yeah great yeah, so you said I could have a few stories, right? Can I have yeah, yeah, one? go for it, go for it. I like success stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is Sarah's story. Now, Sarah came along to one of my talks when, and she was 17, and she said, can I stand up on the stage and tell my talk, give my story to the audience? I mean, I was amazed. And this is what she said. 
I'm 17 years old. I was diagnosed with depression at the age of six. I tried to kill myself three times. My mum found the fail-safe eating. She put me on it and within a week we saw a change. I wasn't as sick. My depression basically vanished. I've been really happy ever since. It basically saved my life. Oh, my gosh. I know. Everybody needs to know about that and that she is not the only one. We have lots of stories like that. These ultra-processed foods can be associated with depression and there are studies coming out overseas, most recently in Spain, France and Italy, that ultra-processed foods are related to depression. Wow. Wow, indeed. Yeah, it's a bit scary. Gosh, you're not making this parenting gig any easier. <laughs> no, not you, Sue. I shouldn't say you. I should say <laughs> the people that are producing the ultra-processed foods. Oh, yeah, look, it's one of those things. It's amazing to hear those, as I said, kind of to hear those success stories and understand and find the link. That's the important part, find the link. Yeah. And then to be able to change that around in such a short period of time, I think that's where I'm kind of just going, wow, that's just amazing. So, yeah, so the studies that you just mentioned, sorry, because my brain was still back at the one week difference. <laughs> so the studies you mentioned in Europe, they're basically just providing evidence base to say these ultra processed foods having a direct link to depression. Was that where that was leading to, Sue? Yes, they're not diet studies that they're doing. What they're doing is they're the one in Spain that has come out really recently. They've been studying thousands of university graduates for a long time and asking them what they eat and watching what happens to them, you know, what they die of or how they end up. And that's the one. So it's ultra-processed foods are now related to a whole series of adverse health problems. Okay, a whole gamut. Yeah, well, that doesn't surprise me. Depression is the latest one. Yeah, gosh. Yeah. Okay. It takes a bit of processing time, I think, Sue, (laughs) when you say stuff like that. And, and it can be so hard out there when you just want to, you know, prepare dinner or just pop into the supermarket. It's kind of making my brain go, oh, I might have to think more carefully about all, all of this. And I'm sure there are others listening that are potentially thinking the same thing. Can I ask you a question, Sue, and, and just to kind of go back to basics a little bit. Again, in your book, Fed Up, you discuss, you know, the effects of synthetic additives and natural chemicals. Can you just tell us or explain what that is? Again, you may have touched on this a little at the start. Can you just touch on that again? Right. So you're asking about the synthetic problem. additives. Right. They don't chemicals. have to be, yeah, but the additives don't have to be synthetic. Okay. For example, if it says no artificial preservatives on a loaf of bread, then this is probably the latest way of rebranding the bread preservative because there's a paper about it in a journal from an American food technologist who said, oh, yes, we can get the desirable all-natural label by doing it this way. So they just make the chemical in a different way. They culture it in something natural and then they can say it is natural, but it isn't, you know. It's still the same chemical that affects people. Okay, so having said that, it's all the artificial colours can cause problems, obviously. And then there are two natural colours that can cause problems. The worst one of those I've already mentioned, 160B, the anatomy. And then there's preservatives. And there's a whole string of preservatives and they can cause major, major problems for a lot of people. And the bread preservative is just one of those. And then you've got some additives that I think of as they're like preservatives anyway. They're used as preservatives but they're called synthetic antioxidants. 
so like BHA, BHT. But we've got lists of all these on our website. Yeah, I know, I know. There's heaps. So, yeah, and absolutely. You can carry and, you know, there's a little magnifying card so you can hold it over the label. And, and right. then you've got your flavour enhancers. So, you know, it used to be MSG, but there's a whole range of those now and they can be a whole lot of different things too. Yeah. And there's a difference too with how food additives different countries. I know you've been to a lot of different countries talking to yeah. a lot of people over the years. Can you just give us a quick snippet of what you've come to know when it comes to additives in different countries? Yeah. Well, actually, one of the studies that I've done, you were going to ask about those at some stage. Yeah. And one of them was looking at why an asthma study in young children all over the world showed that English-speaking and Spanish-speaking children were much more likely to have high rates of asthma. And the answer is, you know, that they are much more likely to be using these additives they, in those countries, whereas other countries are less likely to do that. Sorry, I've lost the track here. Is that answering your question? Yeah, well, I was looking at how, because I guess the regulations of food additives are a bit different in different countries, right? Yeah. Well, not only that. I mean, some people, like in France, they're really against additives, or they used to be. Whereas in Spain, right next door, they're like Australians. They're very happy-go-lucky. <laughs> Don't care. Additives in your food? Sure, put it in, you know. Relaxed, yes. Yeah, that's right. So that's the sort of thing you're dealing with. It depends a lot on culture, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's when you mentioned your study, that was where I was kind of thinking about there must be obviously cultural factors in terms of the foods that are commonly used in different cultures and traditions that would perhaps have a subgroup of people be more at risk of, I guess, responding to or be more exposed to certain food chemicals, etc. Is that a logical <laughs> conclusion to come to? Uh, yes, but if you take it back 50 years, there are also studies going on showing very clearly that traditional diets are much better for people than, you know, our current Western diet. Oh, the processed one. Yes, of course. Yeah. Totally, totally. That's right. But, yeah, so if you're talking about traditional foods, then you didn't have additives in them. But then I can also see what you're saying, that traditionally what it was, okay, so what about natural foods like? Olive oil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Olive oil and tomatoes. So these, you would think that Italians live on these things, and it's true, they have a lot of olive oil, but not as much oil. The traditional diets were much lower in these things. Now people are having more oil, and so they think it's okay to have, you know, lots of olive oil, which is really high in salicylates. And also we get a number of families writing to us, and they have a Mediterranean background. You know, they come from... Italy, I got one of those just the other day. And she said, you know, why is our daughter having trouble with eating tomatoes and all this sort of thing? Because we come from Italy and that's what people do. And then she asked about her nona, grandmother, and she was told that, well, I only used to eat tomatoes once a week and it was fresh tomatoes. They didn't open a tin of tomatoes for every meal and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. we've lost track of what traditional diets really were. Everything's sort of over the top. And it's much easier with processed food to have access to foods that are out of season. So, for instance, with berries, you know, when I was a kid, berries were really expensive. If you ate a strawberry, it was one, you know, as a topping, not a punnet at a time. And yeah. I have to tell you now, strawberries are just so high in salicylate. 
that some of the worst photos I've ever seen of eczema in kids and things like that are the mothers who come to my talks and show me photos of their kids on their phone and, you know, a punnet of strawberries a day is asking for trouble or more. Gosh. Yeah, yep, yep. And that's what you were kind of alluding to before when you were talking about dose or dosing yeah. or portion, if we want to call it that. That's right. There's definitely been a change in, in that too over the years. Yeah, absolutely. And that you've mentioned strawberries. So obviously with fruit, what are the myths around fruit? Because I know you talk a little bit about that. Well, the food industry has gone to a lot of trouble to make everybody think that fruit is just, you know, superfood, the healthiest you can get, so that if they're selling a product that's got 5% real fruit in it, oh, gosh, that must be really good for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and everybody has sort of swallowed that because fruit tastes good. But there's a professor of head of nutrition and dietetics at King's College London, Professor Tom Sanders, at the time, who says an absolute myth that fruit is full of vitamins and minerals and it's really good for you. He said the sad thing is that people don't eat enough vegetables such as cabbage. And I used to do this talk, this sort of riff about Brussels sprouts in my talks because as a kid I hated Brussels sprouts. (laughs) You know, I never bought them as an adult. I just thought, no. And yet, you know, they're remarkably good for you. And so I would ask because I was saying, you know, this one night and the woman in the front row said, Brussels sprouts are my favourite food. (laughs) So so I asked everybody, put your hand up if you like Brussels sprouts. It's really interesting how many people actually like Brussels sprouts. Yeah, I'll put my hand up, Sue. Can I tick that box? I have one small sigh of relief in this conversation. I eat Brussels sprouts. Yay. Right. Okay. Well, that is great. And I must admit, after I read an article in New Scientist called My Best Friends are Brussels sprouts. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I started eating them too. And my cookbook, the Failsafe Cookbook, is full of recipes on how to feed things like that in kids. So you hide them, you know, in the mashed potato or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There are ways to do it. Fantastic. And you mentioned yet your Failsafe Cookbook, which I was going to ask you about because, again, busy parents and we want things to be easy and, you know, some of the work done for us. And you have done that. And I met, and Howard too. We can't forget. Howard. Oh, we can't. (laughs) You've both worked hard in this area. But tell us about, you know, fail safe because, well, you just tell us about fail safe diet. Okay. Well, fail safe is a word we came up with. It stands for free of additives, low in salicylates, amines, and flavor enhancers because we didn't want to talk about diet. We actually called it fail safe eating and fail safe foods because people get put off by the idea that it's a diet. So the diet is the RPA elimination diet that you do at the beginning, the diagnostic diet, they call it. So you do that to find out what's affecting you, preferably with a dietitian, and then you do the challenges and the reintroduction to see how much you can manage. And then you've got to spend time trying to find out what you can eat that doesn't affect you and how you can do it. And I am not a good cook. I loathe cooking. (laughs) and my idea was it's got to be, as you said, quick, easy, you know, what can I do that's still okay and healthy? And so that's what the recipes in my book are about. They're not about gourmet cooking at all. (laughs) You want gourmet cooking? There are other books about that. (laughs) It's how about how to get the foods into the kids and they enjoy it and they're healthy and it doesn't affect them badly. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And it has done really well. 
So well done, because that is a huge help to be able to just pick up the recipe book and go, okay, as I said, the homework's done for us. What can we do? Is there still you know, any feedback about challenges in terms of getting started or switching to some fail-safe recipes? Do you see any, you know, do you have you got any good tips about getting started? In terms of getting started, yes. Our DVD has some tips on doing that. But also, yeah, if you go to our website, it's the first thing, no, the second thing you come to, I think, how to get started. Oh, and perfect. things like cleaning out the pantry because you really don't want anything left in the house that's going to call to you in the middle of the night, stuff like that. You know, a lot of people will say, all right, we'll eat all this stuff in the pantry, and then they go, oh, bad mistake. We're obviously affected by food. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So just being organised, trying some of the recipes first. But, look, everybody is different, and they've got to come to it in their own time. Some people will hear this and they'll say, right, we're starting tomorrow. I wasn't like that. We just reduced our additives slowly. and tried things out and eventually got around to doing it. Yeah, that slow and steady and that gradual approach, I think, yeah, can work for a lot of people because it's not such a big change. It's not a sudden change and it it is a nice way to just adopt new behaviours, isn't it, and adjust to a different way of eating and experiencing food. That's right. Well, the other thing is timing that obviously you can't start doing it if your child's just about to go to school camp or something like that, which, of course, is not happening now. So this is probably a really good time to do it. Mm -hmm. What we used to reckon, the very best time of year is the day after Christmas. (laughs) 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 Excellent. Yeah, everybody's been eating everything they wanted and they've had enough and they're ready to try it. And so a lot of families do that and it's great. But, you know, in some ways what we're going through now is pretty much like that. You're not going out anywhere, you're not going on excursions, you're at home and you're cooking for yourself and, yeah, good time to do it. Yeah, so that sounds like a bit of a take-home message, Sue, to anyone that's potentially thinking about exploring this further. Now is a good time to do it simply because it's easier, I guess. Now is an easier time to be able to put something like this into the day-to-day routine. So, Sue, have you got any other take-home messages to parents, carers and also those who work with children? Well, my main take-home message is to take food seriously because most people don't realise either that they're affected or how badly they're affected, and it can be really life-changing. I am constantly amazed by the number of messages we get from people nearly every day saying, thank you for saving my life, and in a lot of cases they actually mean it, or thank you for saving our family, or from young adults who've grown up and said, you know, thanks to you, you know, I had dropped out of school, I went to uni, I got the job I wanted. I mean, really, these are huge. Yeah. Yeah, it's really worth taking it seriously. But some of the some of the things that make it easier are in, well, there's a chapter in Fed Up yep. called How do you get a difficult child to stick to this diet? (laughs) And in in one word, bribery. (laughs) Yep. Yep. I just said, you know, what's it worth to you? (laughs) And then we negotiated. (laughs) And that worked really well. But I know that some people say, you know, we'd really like the whole family to do a scientific experiment. They look at it that way. And it can also be better if you do it. Another good reason for doing it with a dietitian because the diet, it's not the mother who's saying you can't eat that, it's the dietitian who's saying you can't eat that. Yeah. And, of course, at the moment 
dietitians are doing a lot of Skype or Zoom consultations as well. You know, it's actually an easier time from that point of view as well. So we've got a list of supportive, experienced dietitians. There are hundreds of them on our website if people are interested in that. Fantastic. And it is a super resourceful website. So Sue, tell us, I know people are going to have more questions and will want to find out more. So tell us how people can find out more and where and how they can contact you if they want to. Yeah. Okay. Well, for more information, so I've mentioned before, we've only just put our DVD for free up on YouTube and everybody's really enthusiastic about that. It really does make a lot of difference. What's a YouTube channel called? I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Fail say, fed up. Intolerance Network, Food Intolerance Network, what? <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that one. Sorry. It's that. probably linked to your website. It's probably linked to your website. Well, you can certainly find it on our website. I yeah. 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 Sorry, I threw that in there, Sue. <laughs> yeah, no, that's okay. And here's another hint from a lot of safe mothers. Obviously, it can be hard getting the, the fathers on board. And what the mother says, and sometimes it's the other way around, they say, sit down and watch the DVD in a place where the rest of the family can see you and they will gradually sit down and they'll watch it with you and at the end they are likely to say, oh, maybe we should try that, in which case you say, oh, that's a good idea and pretend it was all the right idea and let them go with it. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the DVD. Now, my books, you don't have to buy them. They're available in libraries and, you know, there's heaps of information in those. And our website, heaps of information. And, of course, we've got a Facebook group, which is incredibly friendly and supportive. They're really wonderful. So there's, I think, now 17,000 people in that. Wow. And your Facebook group is called Failsafe. Failsafe is in it. So if you were to search Failsafe on Facebook, I'm pretty sure. It's It's on the front page of our website. Isn't it, Sue? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I don't know the name of it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it because I have come across it, Sue. So, right, I have a feeling that it does have the word "failsafe" in there. It's actually called Sue Dingate Failsafe Group. Right, right. <laughs> okay, so that's directly me looking at Facebook right now. It's a Sue Dingate Failsafe Group. Yeah. Again, even there, there's just streams of people that are sharing success stories and valuable questions and great answers coming there too. So that's amazing. You and Howard are both super amazing with all the work you've done over these years and the continual work that you keep doing. So thank you on behalf of all the listeners. And as I said, you've just helped countless people over the years and you will continue to do so in the years to come. So very, very grateful to you and to Howard. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, Sonia. It's been great chatting with you. Certainly an eye-opening chat there with Sue Dengate. And I do encourage you to check out fedup.com.au as well as have a look at her publications, her Fed Up book and also her Fail Safe cookbook as well as her DVD. Now, if you have enjoyed today's episode and you know that there are others that will benefit from the information shared, please do share this with family, with friends and with colleagues who you know will find value. Please also remember to leave a rating and a review and know that you can also check out the show notes on chataboutchildren.com. I thank you so much for your attention. I celebrate you and look forward to chatting soon. Thanks for joining the Chat About Children with Sonia Vestelich, www.chataboutchildren.com.